and welcome to Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson, and I'm a cartoonist, scholar, and educator. And my name is E. Jackson, and I'm a cartoonist and scholar. On Drawing a Dialogue, we put comics into historical and educational contexts. Mm-hmm. Welcome to episode 14. So today, our topic is going to be on autism in comics and social-emotional learning, which is a sort of a theory um, in education. Right. So... Kathy was the one that brought this topic to me, um, specifically social emotional learning. Yeah. So, I mean, I have a lot of experience with um, neurotypical kids, but I also have a lot of experience with um, neurodivergent kids. And it's something that Mm -hmm. I think about a lot because um, a lot of children find that the art classroom can be a really great place to find new outlets for learning differences. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I actually, talking with colleagues, I find a lot of success in my classroom specifically because there's so many different ways to talk about art and to create art. And so I wanted to go a little bit more in depth in the topic. Yeah. um, So I ended up spending a lot of time with how autism can be embodied in comics similar to how I've spoken on uh, trauma in comics before. And the reason I kept kind of coming back to this is, I I wanted to sort of establish this before we get into it, is that I'm autistic myself. And so uh, looking at those perspectives is interesting to me um, and seeing sort of uh, the formal qualities of comics and how they can be used to sort of like create this experience in a way for uh, the full like neurodiverse population to understand more. Yeah. And my experience in the classroom has been that creating comics can also be a way to grow and explore this topic. Yeah. Um, so on Drawing a Dialogue, we have um, multiple segments. So E usually mm-hmm. goes first, creates like sort of a context and sort of a history um, theory And then I go with sort of the educational application of these ideas. Cool. So I have um, this episode is going to be a little different in that I'm not presenting really like a cohesive history so much as I have about uh, like four articles I want to talk about. I want to start with Difficult Articulations, Comics Autobiography, Trauma, and Disability by Dale Jacobs and Jay Dolmage in The Future and Image and Text from 2012. I wanted to start with this because I think it's a good link back to previous discussions that we've had in the violence in the media episode and in the memoir episode where I've talked about trauma and comics. The memoir episode? Yeah. The memoir episode, thank you. In traditional prose memoirs of trauma, such as Alice Sibold's Lucky 1999, Doris and Allison's Two or Three Things I Know for Sure 1995, or Aaron Ralston's 127 Hours Between a Rock and a Hard Place 2004, language bears the burden of representing what is unimaginable and of providing an avenue towards quote-unquote healing for the trauma survivor. As Lee Gilmore explains, what is crucial to the experience of trauma are, quote, the self-altering, even self-shattering experience of violence, injury, and harm, and, quote, the multiple difficulties that arise in trying to articulate it. She goes on to write, language is asserted as that which can realize trauma, even as it is theorized as that which fails in the face of trauma. 
Traditional memoirs of disability also bear the burden of challenging a normative culture as they confront the normative tropes of narrative. How do you make the unique embodied experience of trauma or disability accessible to the reader? The answer, all too often, is that memoirs of trauma and disability fail to trouble norms of representation or norms of representing. Both trauma and disability share the curious problem of being seemingly ineffable and individuated, yet also overdetermined. Despite Gilmore's arguments for the necessity to look beyond the claims of language with regards to trauma and memoir, she nonetheless succinctly articulates a central problem of not only memoirs of trauma, but of all memoirs, including those involving disability. How do we construct from our memories the normative language of narrative? But what if language were not the only resource available to the memoirist? Would new possibilities for articulation open? Or would the difficulty simply multiply and layer? Multimodal texts such as comics draw on not only linguistic signs, but also visual, gestural, spatial, audio, and multimodal, the combination of all the aforementioned systems of signs. The available resources expand just as possibilities and difficulties proliferate. So the argument uh, Jacobs and Dolmage are making is that in memoirs of disability and of trauma, the challenge is that language is in itself limiting and plays into normative ideas that uh, these situations tend to fly in the face of. And what I'm going to like bring up again and again and what comes up again and again is the power of of comics in particular and other multimodal art forms to move away from the reliance on just language Mm. and by like being able to use the language in a different, in a non-normative way by pairing it with visual or auditory or whatever, uh, symbols, uh, a new addressing of these ideas can happen. They go on to write, um, Gustorf's positioning of narrative at the heart of autobiography, however, is an important concept that can be seen in later theoretical work by writers such as Paul John Eakins, Paul Anthony Kirby, and Charlotte Lind. To summarize these scholars' arguments, narrativization is the way that we as human beings make sense of our identities and the social spheres in which we exist, both consciously and unconsciously. We all continuously construct ourselves in story to ourselves and to others as a way to deal with the discontinuities of our lives. As we continually construct our identities, we do so through narrative, whether in private thoughts or public autobiography. The idea of the self made in story is a key concept in autobiography. The fragmented self is assembled in a temporarily stable form as it is simultaneously created and communicated in ways that are inextricably connected. While prose autobiography relies on language to construct the self, comics autobiography uses multiple modes of meaning as the building block of textual identity, including the alphabetic, the spatial, the visual, as well as the audio and gestural, both of which are represented in comics by the visual. So again, what they're saying is that um, in autobiography in particular, and in just our personal daily lives, Mm -hmm. we use story narrative to explain uh, the events of our lives, right? Like that's how we communicate to other people. And when you're writing a memoir or an autobiographical comic or something, you're constructing a story off the events that have happened to you Mm -hmm. that follows like a narrative arc. So in prose, there's limits to that because it relies solely on language uh, and like the written word. But since comics rely on multiple modes of meaning and use uh, the visual in ways that allow you to access uh, like auditory and gestural and performance and things like that, 
it can sort of broaden those horizons and challenge uh, how we present narratives about ourselves. Mm. So they go on. Um, Disability studies theory offers some productive possibilities for exploring the tension between reality and representation. As Rosemary Garland Thompson writes, quote, seeing disability as a representational system engages several premises of current critical theory that representation structures reality, that the margins constitute the center, that human identity is multiple and unstable, and that all analysis and evaluation has political implications. Or as Tobin Siebers suggests, disability offers a challenge to the representation of the body. Usually this means that the disabled body provides insight into the fact that all bodies are socially constructed, that social attitudes and institutions determine, far greater than biological fact, the representation of the body's reality. In short, Understanding that many ways that a disabled body is constructed is a means of recognizing the social and rhetorical construction of all bodies. So we see this uh, this theory in disability studies about how um, the existence of the disabled body being construct is used to also establish what a non like a quote unquote normal body looks like. Um, you see the same idea in. Um, queer scholarship we've talked about that like trans bodies are often used as a way to mark normal bodies and things like that mm. so again we're just sort of setting the ground for like uh what can be done with the comic image to challenge this concept of representation okay. um Certainly, most mainstream comic books and graphic novels offer up these visual rhetorics in overtly hegemonic ways. So now they're criticizing, so that we've talked about like the possibility of comics, and now they're offering a, a sort of critique of okay. comics. For example, disabled children are often seen as helpless and in need of rescuing, a trope seen when Superman or Spider-Man is depicted pulling a child in a wheelchair from a burning building. Such sentimental visual images serve to underscore the heroism of the main character as he is saving those who are deemed most vulnerable. Deformities are worn by comic villains as signs of evil or defiant punishment, Dr. Doom's disfigurement or the Mole Man's hunched and deformed body, and these quote-unquote crippled geniuses are seen as motivated by their anger at the world. In other words, these figures are depicted as the grotesque other, which we've talked about in the physiognomy episode. Yeah, yeah. It really ties into the other episode that we did and yes. the fat phobia episode, too. Yes. Yeah, that too. Um, the flip side of the coin is that superheroes such as Daredevil or Professor Charles Xavier have superpowers to overcome their disabilities and thus are celebrated for their triumphs over adversity. However... As Susan Squire suggests, quote, as a medium combining verbal and gestural expression, comics can convey the complex social impact of a physical or mental impairment, as well as the way the body registers social and institutional constraints. She goes on to write that comics may have the power to move us beyond the damaging discourse of normalcy into a genuine encounter with the experience of disability, while Gillian Whitlock adds that the unique vocabulary and grammar of comics and cartoon drawings might produce an imaginative and ethical engagement with the proximity of other. So basically there are, it's important to critique and acknowledge that there are still flawed representations, right? Yes. There's a lot of uh, uh, like using disability as the other of 
uh, infantilizing disabled characters or making them evil, etc. Mm-hmm. Or like the quote unquote overcoming adversity style plots mm-hmm. where a disabled character is redeemed by like undisabling themselves basically in some way. Mm. But because of the language of comics and the complexity of comics, uh, it can move us past that into an authentic and empathetic understanding of disability. Mm -hmm. So now I'm going to move on to this chapter from Disability in Comics and Graphic Narratives from 2016. It is reading in pictures, revisioning autism in literature through the medium of manga. I know we usually don't talk about manga specifically, but what I liked about this, the way this article is written is that it actually just addresses the formal differences in the way that manga is constructed over like the trends in uh, like American European comics. Yeah. And I mean, the reason that we don't necessarily talk about manga is because we are just North American. So yeah. <laughs> there's like the cultural aspect. We don't necessarily have. Um, yeah. We're always just coming from a North American perspective. So that's why that's not something we generally talk about but it's not like it's off the table oh yeah yeah obviously and i think what's interesting (laughs) is that like these conventions that uh chris foss who's the the writer addresses um i think more and more in contemporary comics you're seeing them in like you're seeing them outside of manga as well because so many young cartoonists grew up with manga and just naturally employ that visual language because they've learned it Mm. which is interesting um okay so uh foss writes Indeed, the various components of the visual gestalt, abstract background effects, bleeds, captions, motion lines, panel shapes and sizes, sound effects, speech balloons, splash pages, symbolia, etc., and the particular iconography unique to manga, which employs set artistic conventions, including facial features and other character design traits, to express emotion or communicate internal character states, together seem uniquely suited to provide a more complex heterogeneous and interactive literary experience of autism. At the same time, such a thesis risks dichotomizing visual and verbal cognitive styles, reinforcing hierarchy instead of exploring difference, which would be particularly problematic in that, as Melanie Yurgo has shown, the typical autism essay consistently has relied on binary configurations, circle diagrams, and discourse communities in its many flawed attempts to conceptualize the difference between autistics and neurotypicals. Um, So what he's saying is that uh, the visual language of comics, in particular, the visual language of manga, uh, which uses more, uh, like, focuses more on character facial features and symbols that sort of represent internal emotional states, mm-hmm. can make a more, inter- like, a more full-rounded experience of autism, but it's dangerous to uh, separate wholly visual and verbal cognitive styles, because um, while it's a stereotype that autistic people are completely visual, that's obviously not the case. <laughs> For everyone. Okay. (laughs) So he goes on to write, uh, Sarah Burge, writing on Paul Karasik's comics, establishes why sequential art is so promising for representing the experience of people with cognitive disabilities, asserting that because traditional narrative format is often seen as an essential component of constructing one's selfhood, difficulties in cognitive or communication often lead to the perpetuation of stereotypes about the loss or lack of intelligence and personhood. 
These factors, she continues, make issues of representation that much more important for people with neurological differences whose experiences may not be best expressed using traditional narrative forms. Birch then goes on to highlight how comics can depict combinations of motor, sensory, emotional, social, or cognitive factors affecting a person, thereby avoiding the reduction of the person to a stereotype or one particular facet of his or her identity. So again, we're seeing this idea that like because it's multimodal and can pull on a lot of different embodiments at once, it's possible to sort of challenge the limitations again and actually like within the same story or image uh, provoke multiple understandings of what their experience is. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I love that. That Mm -hmm. totally applies to what I'm going to talk about in my section too, just like the multimodality of comics so you can you can talk about lots of different things and you aren't you aren't stuck in your format Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Foss goes on, as McLeod notes, because traditionally pictures have been characterized as received information and words as perceived information, the former may be misconstrued as simple representation and the latter is complex meaning. Indeed, the historical progression from early picture symbols to abstract alphabets would only seem to confirm this hypothesis. This in turn might easily translate into the implicit association of the visual slash verbal slash autistic with simple-mindedness and thus with diminished or absent personhood. Yet McLeod's whole point in understanding comics is to expose the word-picture dichotomy as too reductive and to counter any hierarchizing of words over pictures. Conceptual metaphor theory, advanced by the cognitive linguists George Lakoff and Mark Johnson, represent one compelling means of deconstructing the assumption that the written word is more advanced form of expression than the image, establishing as it does how the visual is of as vitally metaphorical as the verbal. In their picture, Pictorial metaphors of emotion in Japanese comics, Kazuko Shinohara and Yoshihiro Masunaka apply what they see as the central tenet of conceptual metaphor theory, namely that, quote, metaphor by its very nature not only affects surface linguistic expressions, but also characterizes con- cognitive and conceptual structure to the study of nonverbal and multimodal metaphors in manga. Focusing primarily on the emotion of anger, Shinohara and Matsunaka analyze both indexical signs such as bulging eyes or reddened faces and pictorial runes such as jagged lines or bold typeface. So um, the theory that they're talking about, conceptual metaphor theory, is that basically we think of metaphor Mm -hmm. as a linguistic device. But it can run deeper in that it can also come to sort of like represent an actual cognitive or conceptual understanding. And as the examples they use, how manga depicts anger, another really good one um, that they talk about that I don't have as a pull quote, but the little uh, anger lines, the little like four bulgy, Mm -hmm. what do you put like over your temple? Oh, it's, it's a bulging artery. But it's so abstracted that in manga people under like you understand what it means when you look at that to the point where it doesn't actually have to be on a person's body for you to understand what it means because they'll put it mm-hmm. it'll be in speech bubbles it'll be like over someone's head this has a lot to do with semiotics too right like it's the symbolism mm-hmm. yeah yeah this is a hundred percent semiotics um European and Western comics tend to be less focused on the interiority of the characters and things are conveyed more through like the outside world around them, like things that are acting upon them. 
But manga spends a lot of time on the interiority of the characters and has sort of developed its own visual language for conveying a character's internal thoughts. Um, the drive to associate in particular underwrites the sort of visual iconography Shinohara and Matsunaka identify with manga. Indeed, Grandin, Temple Grandin, uh, Grandin's autistic thinking and pictures support such a view. For her, association rather than logical thought processes are an important, quote, indicator of visual thinking as the primary method of processing information, as evidenced by her own tendency towards a kind of free association whenever she replays the video of a memory in her imagination. Further, just as Shinohara and Matsunaka insist even deviated pictorial runes are never arbitrary, Grandin suggests that while autistic symbols may be harder to understand and often appear to be totally unrelated to the things they represent, one may grasp how they provide a tangible reality or understanding of the world if one represents how the autistic mind works via visual associations. Um, so again, to be clear, because I think it's dangerous to play into the stereotype that all autistic people are visual, even Temple Grandin has apologized for suggesting that, like based on her own experiences. Okay. It is true that there's like, uh, there's a tendency in understanding, I, should, I guess I should say, uh, that autistic people, the way we think and the symbols that we use to express our thoughts tends to be not understood by the non-autistic population because they seem to be unrelated to what they represent. But to us, like, <laughs> basically, like, it, it, that's just because you don't understand the, like, thought process behind it. And that's similar to how okay. these, how manga uses pictorial runes, um, such as the bulging arteries or the sweat drop, uh, to represent broader abstract concepts that, uh, because of how abstracted the symbols are, at first glance, you might not be able to recognize the correlation. Okay. So my next article actually was cited in the Reading in Pictures article. It's uh, No Life Lessons Here, Comics, Autism, and Empathetic Scholarship by Sarah Burge. Uh, it's from 2010, and it was in Disability Studies Quarterly. Um, Disability Studies Quarterly, actually, this uh, particular one that this uh, essay is from, was 100% about, like, comics and uh, cognitive disability. So it's, like, a very good... We'll have it linked, so I'll highly recommend oh, checking awesome. it out. So Sarah Burge writes, As Mark Austin observes in Autism and Representation, disability scholars have perhaps overemphasized the social construction of disability, leaving a lack of studies of cognitive disability in the field. Because of the lack of perspectives on cognitive disabilities, and autism in particular in the disability studies field, Austin calls for a more empathetic scholarship, which entails both working on representations of autism and dialogue with autistic persons, and combining rigorous scholarship with the experiential knowledge non-autistic writers have gained as family members and friends of autistic persons. Following philosopher Martha Nussbaum's description of empathy as the imaginative reconstruction of another's experience without any particular evaluation of that experience, Austin argues that most popular representations of people with autism are not truly empathetic, but instead reinforce neurotypical experiences, for example, by placing value on overcoming autism, thereby silencing rather than valuing the autistic perspective. I actually mm. like have read a little bit of Austin's 
um, his reference to empathetic scholarship was from a book that he put together after a conference uh, that combined writings from autistic people and non-autistic people about autism, basically. And I like this because a thing you see a lot when people talk about empathy and autism is the focus on how autistic people experience empathy and not a focus on how other people can be empathetic to the autistic experience. Yeah. Yeah, I I liked that this was a reframing of that to the latter. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So comics are a prime medium for the type of empathetic scholarship Austin describes, particularly for studies of cognitive disabilities such as autism. Graphic artist and comic scholar Scott McCloud believes that part of the value of comics lies in their ability to bridge minds to connect people despite our many differences. Elements of comics such as frame size, layout, and a wide range of pictorial styles can be used to invite identification and engagement as the reader visualizes the thoughts of another. As McLeod observes, we all live in a state of profound isolation. No other human being can ever know what it's like to be you from the inside. The wall of of ignorance that prevents so many human beings from seeing each other clearly can only be breached by communication. As a popular form that is both entertaining and widely accessible, comics can help us breach the wall of ignorance that damaging stereotypes build up around people with autism. As Susan Squire observes, comics have enormous potential for the full encounter with the experience of disability, making the narrative of that experience the most fully possible because they include pre-verbal components, the gestural embodied physicality of a disabled alterity, and the precise and valuable specificity. The importance of embodiment is further enhanced by the particular communicative uh, difficulties of those with autism. At times, as in this strip, their story must be told entirely through the body, multiplying emotions across the surface of both the characters and the strip as a whole, and emphasizing the importance of empathy without language. And so again, we see, like, because comics engage with multiple modes of meaning-making, nonverbal communication is possible in a way that it's not in traditional prose narratives. And it can also, like I've talked Mm -hmm. about, challenge the idea that verbal communication is the most evolved form of communication and that nonverbal communication is somehow lesser. Yeah. So she writes... um, Comics provide a means by which to see into another's life and thereby recognize our own. As graphic artists such as Eisner and McLeod have often noted, the comic style itself is particularly engaging because of the level of participation it requires from the audience. Gutters, the space between the frames of comics, invite the reader to create the passage of time the social dynamics, and the specific events that have occurred between frames. Unlike text, whose symbols are usually limited to a single font throughout, the very lines of comics can convey quickly changing emotions, for example, by using jagged lines to demonstrate anxiety. Through these and other techniques, such as the relative fullness or sparseness of single panels, thought bubbles, and sound effects, comics can effectively represent the experiences of their characters. These techniques make comics an important form for academic studies that wish to incorporate the fullness of experience of people with autism. Comics can depict combinations of motor, sensory, emotional, social, or cognitive factors affecting a person, thereby avoiding the reduction of that person to a stereotype of one particular facet of his or her identity. And I really like the way that's phrased because obviously autistic people are not a monolith and everyone has different varying levels of communication ability within different forms of communication. So verbal, nonverbal, or visual, or tactile, 
or uh, like body language. And because comics let you sort of display all of those at once, you can create a faceted experience of someone that even if they are, for example, nonverbal, but strong in other forms of communication, uh, you can still depict that. Or if, if they're strong mm-hmm. in verbal, but not so strong in visual or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's something I talk about a lot in my classes, because like part of what art in general yeah. um, offers uh, students and their creators is that it's the method in which you are creating something communicates the emotions and expressions behind it, right? Yeah, yeah. So, like, the way it's painted or the way it's drawn can Mm -hmm. say a lot. And since we're talking about comics, I mean, that also includes, like, memoir and narrative, too. So it's not just Mm -hmm. a singular image. So the shifting of the way it's drawn... um, But that's that's something that you have to talk about because we're so used to, like photography or like things looking realistic or something being the the best art piece you know and so actually embracing the different ways that you can express a visual image is really important to communication yeah yeah and that's also um in my opinion important not just like in the in the sense that it helps autistic people who are doing memoir or are writing from their own experiences and trying to express that but also uh just people who are writing autistic or neurodivergent characters that comics offers them mm. an opportunity to like very empathetically depict that experience um, without falling into a stereotype if they're careful, because it allows mm-hmm. for them to depict that fullness. Yeah. So my last article. Okay. So this is actually um, this is also by Jay Dolmage and Dale Jacobs, who wrote the first article or chapter that I uh cited from this is their follow-up essay uh mutable articulations disability rhetorics in the comics medium which is from 2016 and was in disability studies quarterly as readers engage with the comics text they make sense of the multimodal elements including the visual linguistic the gestural the audio and the spatial of each page or page spread the arthrological connections between panels and the multiple kinds of transtextual connections between this text and myriad other elements including intertextuality direct references to other texts paratextuality, elements such as the title, chapter headings, epigraph, and so on, that work as an entry point to the text for readers, metatextuality, critical commentary of one text and another, hypertextuality, modification of one text by another, as in spoof or parody, and architectuality, the assignation of a a text to a given genre or genres. Theory Grosstein's notion of arthrology and Gerard Jeanette's concept of transtextuality help explain how readers make connections within and between texts as additional meanings accrue through this layering of connections. These linkages can account for how readers move beyond the individual page and make sense of comics text as a whole. Taken together, multimodality, arthrology, and transtextuality account for the multiple modes of meaning-making, the mutability of expression, and the tensions inherent in the act of representation itself. As Gillian Whitlock writes, the unique vocabulary and grammar of comics and comic drawing might produce an imaginative and ethical engagement with the proximity of the other. Jared Gardner elaborates that comics, especially autography, can allow attachment and distance, doubt and certainty, comment and individual suffering to share the frame. Within this discussion, disability studies is uniquely and ideally positioned to trouble and interrogate meetings around the bodies and experience of comic selves and others, to question how the form represents and creates non-normative transformations of body and mind, and to develop new disability rhetorics. So all of that 
is just a very fancy way of saying that comics exist within the context of other comics and stories that make reference to different things in our society, including disability. And when we are reading a comic about uh, someone with a disability, uh, we are not just reading that in a vacuum. We're reading it in connection to other things that we have read and things it's referencing um, and the way it's written and the way things are laid out on the page and all that stuff. And because comics have a unique language, it actually can create a more um, interactive reading experience because it requires a certain imaginative engagement and ethical engagement. Um, And I've talked a little bit about that in the violence episode that we did that one of the unique things about comics is that there's an engagement required by the reader that's not required in other mediums in that you can choose how long you spend on a page or how quickly you go by a scene Mm -hmm. or you're seeding the pace of consumption to the viewer is how they put it. And that actually makes it possible to... Uh, engage with uh, stories about disability in a more empathetic way also because you're not just being shown images you're actually being required to engage with those images in a way that uh is cognitively empathetic cool yeah and that so that makes them like really perfect i love that for this. yeah <laughs> so yeah that is i how i want to pass it to you great thank you so much e uh that was Amazing. Very like heady theoretical stuff. You know, I love theory. (laughs) So I'm going to start in my education section. Um, I'm going to be mostly talking about social emotional learning, which is sort of an education theory idea. I'm going to abbreviate it as SEL because I'll be saying it a lot. But the reason that I wanted to talk about this is that So I've been a teacher for seven years. I'm going to be drawing from a lot of personal experience with all sorts of different students. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know how many students I've taught thousands (laughs) (laughs) at this point. I mean, some some years I have hundreds and hundreds of different students. So and I've I've taught all over the place. But I also am just really hesitant to talk about specific children. I'll I'll never do that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that has a lot to do with what a classroom is like, too. Um, so I'm going to be using terms uh, the terms neurodivergent and learning differences mm-hmm. um, because sometimes you get learning disabilities, but I think that's like sort of a problematizing approach to for a student. Um, they just learn in a different way, yes. right? Yeah. And so I prefer those terms, but I also like, I think it's also important to acknowledge neurodiversity in a classroom. Mm-hmm. I mean, students will never be hegemonic, and cognitive ability is one of those things that there's not going to be a hegemony across your students. And I think a lot of teachers know this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is that everyone's different, and it's sort of an educator's job to be able to reach everyone. Oh, I, I just wanted to throw in, so I, those are the terms that I'm going to be using, but if you want to like email us and talk about it, I'm like super into sharing experiences mm-hmm. and broadening that stuff. Yeah, definitely. So, um, and also while we're talking about this, um, I want to say as an educator, I don't see it as my place to uh, diagnose a child, mm-hmm. but it's, is my responsibility to do everything in my power to educate. Usually this means trying a lot of different approaches to a topic. And I think comics, um, which is already an interdisciplinary medium can be adapted so well for different learners. Yes. So that's sort of my introduction to my education section. Yeah. Um, no, I'm excited to hear. I'm excited to learn more about this actually. 
So before I really get into um, social emotional learning, um, which is what what I like about it is that it it really focuses on different approaches okay. to different people. Yeah, right? you're gonna define it for us, right? Yes. But before I do that, <laughs> I wanted to talk about this nice article by John Derby. It is titled, Nothing About Us Without Us, mm. Art Education's Disservice to Disabled People. So it's from 2013, so it's totally recent. Um, it was published in Studies in Art Education. Mm-hmm. So this person, John Derby, was criticizing the journal about just like the lack of literature that's written on art education and disability. Mm-hmm. Here's a quote. Of the scarce disability research in art education journals, most have been without us, as non-disabled authors advocate non-disabled perspectives. Such research typically follows the predominant medical model that conceptualizes disability as a degenerative crisis to be managed by non-disabled caretakers, including teachers. Mm-hmm. John Derby sort of points out that there's only in the past 18 years since the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990, um, there have only been seven articles on disability in this um, <laughs> studies of art education. Oh, fantastic. Which is... <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I'm talking about this because it's really great to have a... Um, I believe Derby said in this article that they are a disabled teacher mm-hmm. themselves. Um, so it's like an awesome perspective to have. But also, there's such a void of literature on this. And it was like a difficult topic to research. So Derby also talks about, um, here's a quote, born out of parental advocacy and institutionalized in the public school system, orthodox special education is often more concerned about non-disabled service providers than disabled learners, and it is not democratic. Mm-hmm. It views disabled people in terms of needs rather than rights positioning them as helpless subordinates. Even now, the Individual Mm. Disabilities Education Improvement Act of 2004, which mandates special education, refers to adult learners up to 26 years old as children. Mm. So special education is a term that is still used. I know it can be kind of charged. I don't, I'm not really going to use it, but it it totally exists. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So often language um, so this is me. Often language can problematize learners and represent disability as inferior without realizing it. And also Derby talks about a punishment for behavior as common occurrence, which I'm going to talk about later. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So rather than preemptively mm-hmm. addressing behavior, it's only sort of that post behavior punishment. Right. Which isn't uh, really isn't setting up. A successful learning environment. And so another final quote, as a progressive field, art education must pay closer attention to disability studies and other disability self-activism measures regarding special education. Art educators should strive toward innovative research that intersects the perspectives of disabled students, artists, and educators with special education, as well as with intersecting identity issues. It is time for our field to acknowledge the dignity of disabled people and the validity of our way of being. So I just wanted to start with this really great perspective because I am a non-disabled teacher. So um, I thought it'd be great to, I mean, to talk about, as uh, Derby said, nothing about us without us, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, along that, um, talking about creating an environment that 
Uh, so I'm not going to be talking about special education classrooms in the sense that they are removing students with different learning styles um, from a classroom. So I really believe in integration, right? And I think the art classroom is great for that stuff. So that's sort of what social emotional learning is, is sort of acknowledging mm -hmm. that social emotional things are something to be taught and something to be learned. So the history of social emotional learning, this term um, emerged from a meeting in 1994 hosted by the Fetzer Institute. This is the history of SEL. Um, it's from casel.org. So the meeting who developed this term um, included researchers, educators, and child advocates mm -hmm. um, involved in various education-based efforts to promote positive development in children. These SEL pioneers came together to address a concern about ineffective school programming and a lack of coordination among programs at the school level. Um, schools were being in inundated with a slew of positive youth development programs such as drug prevention, violence prevention, sex education, civic education, and moral education, to name a few. So what is it? Okay. <laughs> I'm ready. This is from the same website. Social and emotional learning enhances students' capacity to integrate skills, attitudes, and behaviors to deal effectively and ethically with daily tasks and challenges. Mm -hmm. Like similar frameworks, Castle's integrated framework promotes interpersonal, interpersonal, and cognitive competence. Mm. There are five core competencies that can be taught in many ways across different settings. So there's five competencies. So these are self-awareness, mm -hmm. self-management, uh -huh. social awareness, uh -huh. relationship skills, okay, and responsible decision-making. Okay. So I'm going to throw in some bullet points. So self-awareness is the ability to accurately recognize one's own emotions, thoughts, and values. Mm -hmm. um, and how they can influence your own behavior. Uh -huh. um, so it's like identifying emotions, accurate self-perception, recognizing your strengths, self-efficiency, and self-confidence. Mm -hmm. So self-management includes the ability to successfully regulate one's emotions, thoughts, and behaviors in different situations. Um, okay. Effectively managing stress, controlling impulses, and motivating oneself. Okay. The ability to set and work toward personal and academic goals. Um, so this includes impulse control, stress management, self-discipline, self-motivation, goal setting, and organizational skills. And like before I keep going on, I just want to like... So the reason that SEL is really important is that it actually accounts for the whole child. Yes. Um, so this is from an article by Cratchman, LaRocca, and Gabriella. This is from February 2018. So, I mean, this is only a few months old. But educators increasingly recognize the role of students' social emotional skills and academic outcomes. The next step is to figure out how to foster and measure them. While we all want our kids to excel in math, science, language arts, and social studies. Those skills alone aren't enough for success in our ever-changing 21st century society and economy. Students must also develop essential capabilities like resiliency, adaptability, and collaboration that equip them for the demands of the world today. They also need empathy and social awareness to be good citizens and neighbors, to contribute to our communities, and to sustain a flourishing democracy. So part of what I really like about this is that it acknowledges that these are skills to be taught, that these are skills to be learned. Yeah, I was going to say I like anything that frames empathy as a taught skill and not an inherent yeah. gift. <laughs> yeah, and I think acknowledging that different students have different strengths mm -hmm. and different things that they could develop, I think are really important. Yeah. And I think this approach is approaching everyone in the classroom in an open way, mm -hmm. you know, like, so it's teaching everyone in the same classroom mm -hmm. 
using multiple different ways. Yeah. Right? So you aren't isolating anyone because being together with all sorts of different people is really important to child development yeah. and human development in general. I was going to say, it just seems like a really logical part of student-centered learning in general, right? Like, Yeah, exactly. This is, this is like the embodiment of that. <laughs> yeah it's it's like acknowledging that these skills might be inherent and they might absolutely not be inherent Mm -hmm. and so it's just being able to talk about all sorts of different stuff so to go back i just wanted to finish um sort of talking about the five competencies yeah um so the third one is social awareness um so it's the ability to take perspective and empathize with others including those from diverse backgrounds and cultures um mm-hmm. the ability to understand social and ethical norms for behavior and to recognize family school and community resources and supports um so it's like this one social awareness includes like appreciating diversity respect for others empathy really important things part of what social emotional learning um part of why it has a huge surge right now does include addressing racism yeah addressing hate for diversity so it's sort of going back to the classroom and back to younger grades to help foster the social awareness so then the fourth competency of social emotional learning is uh, relationship skills so this is the ability to establish and maintain healthy and rewarding relationships with diverse individuals and groups um, so this is the ability to communicate clearly, listen well, cooperate with others, resist inappropriate social pressure. Um, so this includes communication, social engagement, relationship building, and teamwork. Mm-hmm. And then the final competency is responsible decision making. So this is the ability to make constructive choices about personal behavior and social interactions based on ethical standards, safety concerns, and social norms. So this includes identifying problems, analyzing situations, solving problems ethical responsibility and then castle that's c-a-s-e-l also has this sort of realms of social emotional learning Mm -hmm. which includes classrooms schools homes and communities and i really like to talk about these different realms in which a student lives because you sometimes at school schools where you learn how to do math schools where you do this and that and those skills don't necessarily transfer to these different realms that students occupy which is like homes and their communities and stuff Uh and i think what is great about this because you can teach social emotional learning while teaching these other subjects right Mm -hmm. but social emotional learning is super transferable to being a good citizen to all sorts of stuff which also then helps transfer those other skills that might seem like they're isolated to the school classroom yeah so i'm going to go back to the accounting for the whole child article this one's interesting because education has so many different concepts for what is important yeah so this article seems to want to talk about getting a job holding a job being good economic worker um which isn't necessarily <laughs> i mean it is important to be able to hold a job and like have yes. positive relationships with your co-workers but also that is sort of a uncomfortable way for me to think about my students yeah as future workers you know and i mean i am sympathetic to wanting to make sure everyone is able to have skills to do whatever they want when they grow up, <laughs> I think is important. Yes. 
But I don't like to think about students and their, how strong they can provide for <laughs> capitalistic the labor economy. <laughs> yeah. Right. So this article um, by Maurice J. Elias from 2004 is titled The Connection Between Social Emotional Learning and Learning Disabilities, Implications for Intervention. Um, so the article starts out by acknowledging that there are controversies within education and scholarship about students with learning differences. Yeah. But there is a consensus on a few things, right? So these students have difficulties with social relationships. Uh, specifically, they tend not to be accepted by peers mm-hmm. and they can display shortcomings in the way that they interact with peers and adults. Further, they have difficulty reading nonverbal and other subtle social cues. Mm -hmm. Educating children with disabilities in the mainstream has increasingly been identified as a priority in special education, like I just talked about, based on recognition that singling children out for intervention reduces opportunities for natural peer interaction and runs the risk of increasing social isolation and stigma. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, categorizing students and removing them from the mainstream may cause parents, teachers, and students themselves to lower expectations and lose confidence in the students' abilities. So SEL skills are pointed out by parents of neurodivergent children as nearly as essential as academic competence for their children, right? Yes. So many nuanced abilities are necessary for successful social interaction, particularly in the complex environment of schools. SEL, as the missing piece, helps bridge the gap in both theory and practice with regard to improving outcomes for children with learning disabilities. Yeah. SEL also addresses the confluence of individual skills and the way in which the environment promotes development of those skills and supports their use. So social interaction can be very confusing for some people, but many environments take it for granted. SEL allows students to understand these like specifics of social interaction. So he highlights these three skill areas that SEL can build. The first is recognizing emotions in self and others. The second is regulating and managing strong emotions, both positive and negative Mm. emotions. So there's sort of a generalization when I'm talking about these SEL skills. I I mean, I have experience with pre-K to college students, right? So there's like just like a huge broad range of experiences. And so regulating and managing strong emotions can be like for younger children, um, like having really strong emotions in the classroom um, can be really disruptive to learning, not only for other students, but for the student themselves. Yeah. So I just want to be talking about this stuff and just not like sound like I'm generalizing or making it sound like these are negative things, Mm -hmm. but that this is a skill that can be developed. Yeah, because younger children in general are not as adept at managing uh, strong emotions because they don't have the experience yet. Yeah. So yeah, that totally makes sense that that would be a part of it um, instead of like just being a kid in the classroom my experience being a kid in the classroom <laughs> if someone had like a strong outburst of emotion they would be punished for being disruptive right you know like pulled to the side or you know in some way like it made clear that like showing that emotion was bad instead of being taught right. how to show the emotion 
Yeah, I'm going to read this quote that I pulled from this section. Um, so first, teachers will acknowledge the, the strong feelings that students have, including how difficult it can be to find ways of giving them direct expression, mm -hmm. right? Through these discussions, teachers remove some of the guilt and stigma from confusion and anger and normalize it. Yeah. But at the same time, they are implicitly giving students greater responsibility for self-monitoring and following through on managing their strong feelings. And this is the kind of balance that I really enjoy striking with mm -hmm. the classroom is for like honestly any learning difference where a teacher can acknowledge it and can normalize it mm -hmm. but also therefore also giving the student responsibility for working with that. It's less um, dehumanizing because it's not like oh this is a problem that other people have to take care of for you for forever. Yeah. And so SEL skill area number three that this article talks about is recognizing strengths and the area of need. Um, so l students learn well through their strengths and opportunities to use their strengths can leverage a greater willingness to work on areas of weakness or learning difficulty. This is accomplished by helping students work in areas of multiple intelligence, strength, and preference. So multiple intelligences, I believe, is like a multimodal way of approaching different intelligences so you could be like physically inten intelligent mm. kinetically intelligent okay so ch sort of challenging the like what i talked about with challenging the idea of like linguistic ability being absolutely the only important thing mm -hmm. yeah and then so the, what you can do is then adapt your teaching to a student's strengths mm. while also bringing up other areas that could be grown so allow students to use and build their creativity. Comics is a great resource for this um, because it contains many entry points through drawing, writing, coloring. You can also do it on your own or you can do it in group projects. This article also talks about language arts and images. So images and text together as a way to talk about multiple intelligences. Sometimes it feels like we are shoehorning comics into our topics, but this is literally so directly applicable. <laughs> To comics. I'm going to talk a little bit about reading and uh, social emotional learning. So um, this is an article titled Promoting Emergent Literacy and Social Emotional Learning Through Dialogic Reading. Um, it's by Doyle and Bramwell from 2006. I mean, partly what you're going to notice is that this is really recent, right? So the Americans with Disabilities Act is 1990. Mm -hmm. And so like actually addressing the rights of children with disabilities and learning differences within the classroom is disturbingly recent. Yes. This article is talking about elementary age children. Um, so it sort of ties together literacy and social emotional development. It honors young children's development and creates a more powerful learning experience in both domains, right? Mm -hmm. For literacy and SEL. There's a few aspects of it. So there's shared book reading. So teachers read the same book multiple times, which then invites students who've learned the book to join in. So it ties SEL to literacy, mm, right? Okay. That's sort of the key of what I'm talking about. And this is all adaptable to other aspects of teaching, right? Yeah. So really what I'm talking about is SEL can be ever present in every classroom constantly. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's the key of what I'm talking about here. So shared book reading also gives students the opportunity to active participate in reading. So it's not just like a solo thing, but you can actively participate. It makes it more kinetic. Uh -huh. And it's a social experience. It creates interaction between children and also children and adults, which is important too to cultivate. Yeah, yeah. 
And then it, there's also promoting social emotional learning. Um, so reading stories, this is key for comics too. So you're reading stories with similar social dynamics between characters that reflect the students' lives, right? Yeah. So this is something we've talked about a long time ago, but it's sort of talking about the way that books can be mirrors, windows, or sliding glass doors in children's literature, this theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what a teacher can do or a caretaker or whoever um, can do is start to select books that actually directly reflect a child and their experiences in life, right? So like overcoming adversity or so different types of social interactions. The illustrations in the books can help introduce new social and emotional skills yeah. for a student because okay. they can see symbols and the way it's drawn. Just like what E was talking about is that those illustrations can help create new connections for a student's real life and then can build an emotional vic vocabulary with that imagery. So I just really like that phrase, that emotional vocabulary, because it sort of talks about it like the vocabulary of words of literacy and also the vocabulary of, of emotions is something that can be learned though the nuance rather than just polars um so i'm going to talk about art okay. and social emotional learning um so this article is by russell and hutzel it's from 2007 uh so this is promoting social and emotional learning through service learning art projects um so this ties art skills with behavioral skills Despite the substantial work on SEL, our search for art education literature failed to find investigations based on SEL research and practice or specific mention of SEL. This article intends to take an initial step to in exploring how SEL can advance art education. So good art teaching includes creating conditions for effective learner behavior. Mm -hmm. um, just like what I was saying, SEL should be like ever present. Responsible pupil behavior should be specifically and directly taught to students like any other subject in the curriculum, not just conditionally managed. It acknowledges that students should be taught how to act in a classroom, not just disciplined when they do something wrong. Creating expectations, right? Creating expectations, letting students know. It helps teachers change their attitude that disruptive behavior may be seen as an academic deficit rather than misbehavior that needs to be disciplined. Right. Mm -hmm. So it helps academicize behavior. Yeah. Right. Like as a subject. Right. So if someone is not um, the best at math, they aren't a bad person. They need to be taught math. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of the way that they're talking about it, because it, it just makes it more of a positive experience mm -hmm. and as we all know a positive classroom is one in which students actually learn better and a negative classroom does not create a very good learning atmosphere right um, art educators already teach social emotional skills after all we know that much of art throughout history engaged social issues in one way or another Moreover, the creation of and response to art involves emotional dimensions in some respect. Mm. The goal, then, is to teach explicitly those understanding skills and dispositions that positively affect students' discipline as a regular part of the curriculum. Student discipline sounds like a punishment. That's not necessarily what they're saying. Right, right, right. And then, as I've been saying again and again, it's been difficult to find art education and learning differences uh, like specifically talked about. I did find Art and Autism, a guide for educators. It's a very simple guide. It's written by the Ohio State University Department of Arts Administration, Education and Policy. Mm. It's like a toolkit. 
So the arts provide independent and collaboration to demonstrate a process of self-expression, imagination, and creativity, and create a way to understand different abstractions. The impact of visual arts includes assisting with development of cognition, mm -hmm. developing meaningful self-expression, mm -hmm. increasing imagination and abstract thinking, improving visual spatial discrepancies, improving fine motor skills, Increasing communication and social interaction, improving coping, and developing self-management and organizational abilities. And I can say all of these skills are definitely things that I've witnessed and can really appreciate. Like the fine motor skills of creating art in a classroom, like even be able to cut stuff with scissors, using different tools. I just like it's something to be taught, right? We mm -hmm. take it for granted, but it's something that can be taught and in like a really positive way when you're making artwork. And then so I just wanted to talk about a few aspects. So exactly like what we're doing in Drawing a Dialogue is we are creating our own scholarship here. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to talk about my personal experience. Um, so I'm going to do some classroom anecdotes. Mm -hmm. um, just talking about how creating comics in an art classroom um, has benefited um, social-emotional learning. Yeah. So one of them is reading and creating characters and their emotions. So students, when I ask them to make comics in my classroom, they're writing about people and their motivations who mm -hmm. aren't necessarily the authors, right? So the students are occupying a different character's shoes and trying to understand why a character would do something, which isn't necessarily why the author would do something, right? Yes. So it's understanding different people and the way they might think. So just like what I talked about with E earlier, I had I created a project this summer called Feelings Faces, and it was actually so popular that teachers talk to other teachers about it and then they requested I would come into their classroom so I <laughs> um yeah so I wrote about feelings faces it's a t it's the project is called feelings faces um I wrote about it on comicarted.com so you can find a lesson plan there but basically it's talking with different students I talked with third graders and fourth graders this summer with it we first talk about what symbols are just like what E was saying like semiotics and then I ask the students to create their own symbols to represent different feelings that they've had. Mm -hmm. um, so part of what's great is that students who might get really angry or really frustrated in the classroom can start to objectify their feelings in like a, in a symbol that they can hold in their hands. Mm. And just being able to talk about these different like strong feelings, like these students in these classrooms were able to create it and then set it aside in a way that like I visually saw them benefit. <laughs> <laughs> and talking to their teachers later, being able to talk about feelings, not necessarily in words to communicate feelings in like a visual way was really helpful for these students. And then after we were done creating a whole bunch of feelings, we collaged them into a face. So we talked about how all people have all these different feelings all and they all comprise us. So even though sometimes you get angry or sometimes you get frustrated, you are still able to feel happy and all sorts of stuff. So that's one of these projects that I've come up with myself. So also when you're creating comics, you can illustrate feelings. You can talk about facial expressions and mm -hmm. all, all sorts of other expressions. You can draw them and find other ways to embody them. Another thing is building relationships with other students so you can create near other students. And creating art, me and E talk about this all the time, but it's really vulnerable and it involves a lot of trust. Mm -hmm. So 
you can implicitly start to build relationships with other students, even if you aren't necessarily talking with them. You're creating something near them. Or students can also um, work on a story together, um, which involves a lot of imagination play. Like you, you can create two different characters and they can interact or you can draw on the same piece of paper, mm-hmm. which is just like a great way to build different relationships. And then it also builds uh, writing skills in a new environment. Um, so students who may struggle with writing in an English language arts classroom Mm -hmm. um, for any reason. It could be cognitive or they're still learning English or all sorts of stuff. Creating comics um, can exercise those English writing skills in the art classroom and it also can sort of open up new venues for writing and literacy. And then sort of just the way in which creating comics can empower children Mm -hmm. with visual literacy. So I'm going to quote my own thesis. It's been a while, um, but it is necessary for students to learn visual literacy. Language is no longer and never has been strictly word and text based. In his forward, G argues that in order to be best understand the world, visual literacy is necessary. To quote him, this new world is a multimodal world. Linguists have done such a poor job analyzing language. We treat language as words and grammar, but language has never been unimodal. In actual use, words are related to images, actions, and experiences that give them the meaning. And also, so creating comics can also be empowerment. Um, So while it's important for students to develop visual literacy, it's also important for children to become creators in their own visual worlds. There is a power dynamic to who is allowed to write and produce versus who is only allowed to consume artistic Mm. material. This idea is what is elite. For example, language and dialect, it is intrinsically tied to who is allowed to produce, more specifically, who is allowed to create art. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) that's sort of how I wanted to end. Just like being able to empower anyone to use their imagination and to express themselves for other people to read Mm -hmm. and experience is really important. Thank you, Kathy. That was really interesting. Thank you. Thanks, E. So now it's time for our segment, Letters to the Editor. Mm -hmm. Um, So Letters to the Editor is where we talk about previous topics or new research in those topics. um, Because, you know, in drawing a dialogue, it's always a dialogue. Um, We're always having conversations. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about... Uh, we did a guest lecture at University of Arts in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And in that guest lecture, we talked about the history of comics, and we also talked with classroom teachers and how to use comics um, and different ways to approach it. And we also talked about critical viewing and how to reconcile problematic or harmful ideas that might exist in like older popular quote-unquote comics yeah um so thank you for inviting us it was really fun i would love to continue to be a guest lecturer with e yeah it was very fun to do it with you it's very fun (laughs) um so thank you do you have anything for letters to the editor i do not okay (laughs) fake me out um i just wanted to say it was our anniversary last month oh yeah it was I just wanted to say thank you for to all our intrepid volunteers for um, listening to us for the last year. Um, it's been really wonderful. It's been a really strange year. We, I feel like I've grown a lot. It's yeah. It's been a really. It's been a big year. Yeah, it's been lovely to collaborate on this with you, E. Yeah, it's been yeah. Yes, it has. Thank you. <laughs> uh and then so thanks um yeah, so thank you. uh i want to say 
Thank you to um, Downtown Boys for their song Wave of History. It's off their album Full Communism. You can get it off their band camp. Um, you can email us at uh, drawingadialogue at gmail.com. Uh, we love to get emails. Uh, that's the letters to the editor, in fact. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Draw a Dialogue and tweet us there. Um, you can check out Kathy's arts education website, Comic Art Ed, and you have the feelings faces up on there as a lesson plan, right? Yes, I do. Yeah, so you can check out that lesson plan. It's very good. Um, Thank you. And you can also view all of the citations for this episode on drawingadialogue.com. We put all the citations for every episode we do on the post with the uh, episode. Um, mm-hmm. And you can follow me on Twitter at Hetcha, which is E-H-E-T-J-A. And you can follow me at Kathy G. John, C-A-T-H-Y-G-J-O-H-N. Yeah. So, Kathy, what are you reading? I uh, just finished The Last Wish uh, by Adrzej Sapkowski. He's a Polish writer. It's the first book of the Witcher series, which is um, that video game series, but it's the original fantasy novels that the video games were based off of. Oh, I finally okay. finished it, and it's really good. It's like super high fantasy with like elves and dwarves and stuff like that. Cool. Yeah. Who knows? Kathy's reading high fantasy now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so what are you reading, E? Um, I've been uh, working through Call Me By Your Name by... Um, Andre, I don't know if that's Achiman or Ossiman because it's Italian. He's Italian. But anyway, um, it was made into a movie this past year. Um, but it's about a uh romance a summer romance between the novel's protagonist and a boy that it's a it's a love it's a gay romance between the protagonist and a boy who is studying with his father. Um at, Oh, what a nice summer summer book. It's really good and it's very um the way it's written, it feels very authentically melodramatic for being from the perspective of a 17-year-old. Like it's so like lush and beautiful and uh like very 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 overdramatic in the way that teenagers are. <laughs> <laughs> like or I'm like this is beautiful but also like this is very 17. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I'm very into it. Um and I've also been playing Heaven Will Be Mine, which is the new uh sci-fi visual novel from uh AVB and Mia Schwartz and it's really beautiful also. Cool. Big fan. Yeah. All right, that's it for drawing a dialogue. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to our intrepid Farewell volunteers. Farewell to our intrepid volunteers. Farewell to our intrepid volunteers. <laughs>